If you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 30 to 34, Mark 4, verses 30 to 34, and um, we're just slowly making our way through Mark's gospel. If you're a guest with us, um, our kind of typical way of going about preaching here is to kind of just plant ourselves in in a book of the Bible and then just kind of slowly um, work our way through that book. And so earlier this year, we slowly worked our way through the epistle of Jude, the letter of Jude. Uh, Right now, we're working our way through Mark's gospel, and we should be in Mark's gospel for quite some time here as we just kind of slowly make our way through it. And um, now we come to the uh, fourth and final parable here in Mark chapter 4, the parable of the mustard seed. And uh, that can be found in Mark 4, verses 30 through 34. If you're there, why don't you go ahead and stand with me, and we will read God's holy and precious word. We stand to show our honor and respect to the word of God. We stand to show our reverence as we listen and hear God's word. We want to listen to these words as if the risen Lord Jesus is here speaking them to us. These words come to us with that very same authority, and so we ought to receive them with that very kind of reverence. So let's listen with reverence, let's listen with joy to the words of our King. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for eyes that are open to what you would show us, ears that are open to what you would say to us and hearts that are open to receive what we need from you through your word. We pray that um, you would help us to be faithful hearers of your word, not like, as we read earlier in Mark chapter 4, the beaten down path, the thorny soil, the rocky soil, but help us to be like that fresh, fertile soil prepared by your spirit, to receive the seed of the word and produce 30, 60, 100-fold for the sake and glory of your name. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, try to, try to think of it from the disciples' perspective. The, the first disciples of Jesus there, as we're reading Mark, you know, in the beginning of Mark's gospel... Jesus announces that the kingdom of God has come and is coming in him. It has arrived. And 
And mind you, what the people of Israel had been waiting for here is the kingdom of God. They'd been longing for, anticipating for many years the kingdom of God. They'd been waiting for its arrival. And at the time of Jesus' arrival, they were under the impression that when the promised kingdom arrived and the promised Messiah, it was going to be epic. He was going to go on this military conquest, overthrowing the oppressive Roman regime. He was going to redeem his people from captivity to their captors, to Caesar. He was going to raise all of the believing dead and usher in the the promise of God's end-time kingdom all in one fell swoop. But then what actually happens? What have we seen so far? Jesus goes around preaching sermons that anger people. He, he disappears into places of solitude to get away from the crowds and to just simply pray. He calls a, a small band of disciples, some disappointingly ordinary and others scandalously sinful. And with all of this, while Jesus is actually seeking to hide some of the content of his teaching from the hearing crowds because he doesn't want to launch this kind of massive movement here in Israel. And so the disciples are likely going, you know, is this it? Is this it? And not only Jesus' first disciples, you think about Mark's original audience here as he was writing this gospel. It's it's the local church there in Rome. And of course, it's impressive that the gospel had spread at this point when Mark was writing this to, to... Uh, This city of Rome, the church has grown to reach the city of Rome, the center of the empire. That's pretty significant, but but Rome was a city of around a million people at that time. It's one of the largest cities in the ancient Mediterranean world. And the vast majority of its citizens had bought into, you know, Greek mythology. They worshipped Greek gods. They engaged in emperor worship as they worshipped Caesar as the emperor of Rome. And then here's this church... Estimates say they were probably about uh, 100 people at the time, which was actually pretty large for the first century there. But out of a million people, what were 100 people in the face of such large swaths of idolatry and unbelief? And, And not only that, but they were actually a church that dealt with their own fair share of of issues, their own fair share of division and arguments and controversy as they struggled with the dynamics of being a church of both Jews and Gentiles. They seemed rather small and pathetic and ordinary in a way. And so they were likely looking around and and just thinking, is this it? And what about today? You know, we're 2,000 years into church history. The kingdom of God is has grown and spread considerably. There are people from many nations of the earth gathering this morning to worship King Jesus. There are many denominations and churches representing Jesus in their own kind of particular uh, expressions. And there are many different kinds of churches, mega churches, these teeny tiny storefront churches and cities and old small country churches and just all of these various kinds of churches all scattered throughout the world. And yet, by all indication, the number of God's people here in the U.S. and throughout the West seems to be in decline. A decline that seems to be accelerated on the heels of all of these fast-paced changes going on in our times. And not only that, but if you look around even at our own church, 
perhaps in your own home, in your own life. Look around, it's actually pretty ordinary. And perhaps you might think it's kind of pathetic at times. And so if, if, I'm, if I'm frank, I've asked it several times over the last several years in the process of, of planting and pastoring this church, in the process of parenting, in the process of pressing on in the Christian life. I've asked this question several times. Maybe you've asked it yourself before. Sometimes we're left, we're left wondering in the face of ordinariness, smallness, sin, in the face of decline, is this it? Is this the kingdom of God? How could something so small and so seemingly ordinary have such a title? We need the parable of the mustard seed this morning. It provides us with a much-needed reminder as we're left potentially vulnerable to, to the possibility of disappointment, disillusionment, depression in the face of, of the seemingly sorry state of our own lives and God's people throughout the world. And here's what this is reminding us of this morning. This parable is reminding us that God is patiently at work to grow His kingdom. God is patiently at work to grow His kingdom. Look at verse 30 here again. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? Now right away, we need to address something right off the bat. As you know, Jesus is going to go on to describe the kingdom of God as as kind of growing and spreading like a particular plant. And uh, this creates this question for some of us. Can the kingdom of God grow? Or, Or to put it another way, can Christ's rule and reign grow? And in one sense, we ought to say, well, no. God's kingdom doesn't grow because in one sense, it's already all comprehensive. You know, think about the Great Commission. It's a text we quote quite a lot, Matthew 28, 18. Jesus says, all authority, that's absolute and comprehensive. It's all authority in heaven and on earth. That's, that's everywhere. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It already belongs to him. Jesus' rule and reign is unlimited in its vastness and capacity, so it can't grow in that sense. And yet, in another sense, you see, because while Christ's rule is absolute, it's also not yet fully visible. It's not yet fully manifested. We live in what we call the already not yet of the kingdom, where Christ is alive and seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over all things, and yet the rest of us are still catching up with that reality. And as we catch up, the kingdom of Christ becomes more and more visible uh, visible on the earth. Its, Its visibility grows. His rule doesn't grow, but the visibility of his rule does. As the gospel is faithfully proclaimed and believed, as people are converted and baptized, as churches are planted, as God's people represent him faithfully in the world, the visibility of Christ's rule grows. And in that sense, the kingdom of God grows. And it grows, Jesus says, like a mustard seed. Look at verse 31. It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can nest in its shade. So we see here that the king, I have three Ps for you. The kingdom of God has its puny beginnings. It's puny. It's just teeny tiny. It's like the size of a mustard seed, which 
is actually not the smallest of all the seeds people sometimes can get stuck on. But Jesus, he's not giving a lecture on botany, okay? He's, 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 he's speaking parabolically and proverbially. He's speaking with an exaggerated kind of imagery to show the small beginnings of the kingdom of God in contrast with what will one day be the kingdom of God. And the mustard seed is very small. You know, there it is there. I actually have three right here, and uh, I'm holding it. You cannot see it. I mean, I literally... I could be making this up. I might not be holding a mustard seed at all. Uh, but I promise you, I'm holding a mustard seed. It's so teeny tiny. If Kids, if you want to come up and look at a mustard seed afterward, I have three up here. I'll give them to you and you can go home and plant them. How's that sound? Um, but it's, it's puny. It's, it's teeny tiny. And, 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 and Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like this. It starts out small. It starts out seemingly insignificant. It, it starts out with the arrival of this child born to a poor virgin mother and laid in a feeding trough as a crib. It starts with him growing up in obscurity, laboring as a carpenter in a town where apparently nothing good could come from. It starts with him launching a ministry of preaching and teaching which invites suspicion, confusion, anger, all from religious leaders, even from his own family. It starts with him calling 12 followers, some of whom will go on to deny him or betray him, all of whom are ordinary and sinful. The kingdom of God starts in this way. It seems pathetically small and insignificant, puny. God's work to bring his kingdom to earth, to grow his kingdom, begins in these quiet, hidden, unimpressive ways. The kingdom comes initially, not apocalyptically, but quietly with puny beginnings. But then this parable shows us not just the, the puny beginnings of the kingdom of God, but it's patient growth as well. It's patient growth. Now, the fact that it starts so small and so seemingly insignificant. Well, this shows that, that God is not in a hurry, right? But that his gracious and saving work in the world is going to progress slowly. And this is shown not just in the fact that the kingdom starts so small, but also in the fact that Jesus used something organic. He uses a plant as an illustration here. And this shows us something of the, the nature of the kingdom's growth. Now, the transition from a seed to a tree is a patient, gradual one. Jesus goes on to speak of, of when the seed turns into a tree fully grown, but that takes time. Growth doesn't happen all at once. Have you ever tried to watch a plant grow? It's rather boring. We've gotten more and more into gardening in, in our uh, household, at the green household, and We've planted some peppers and tomatoes and kind of various things. And we planted some sunflowers. And, and each of the kids got to plant their own sunflower this last year. And they were eagerly anticipating the growth. They patiently waited after planting for about 15 minutes. And uh, then they lost interest. Um, and we had to remind them every day. We had to, every day when, when they woke up in the spring and the summer, we had to remind them to go out and, and check to see if there was any progress. And, and the, these sunflowers, they, they actually get 
pretty big, but, but it takes a while. I mean, you plant a seed, and you don't see anything but dirt for days. And then when you finally start seeing green, it's like this little sprout. It's just this tiny little green sprout, and it's growing to be sure, but it takes a while, and you can't watch it grow. It's not this, this uh, microwavable, fast food, drive through kind of process. It's not an Amazon order that arrives one day later kind of process. It's an organic process. It takes time. It's slow. It's, it's patiently growing at its own pace. Well, Jesus says the kingdom of God is, is like that. He's not in a hurry to grow his kingdom. And the growth will not be instantaneous. The kingdom will grow, but God's not in a rush to make it happen. He's not like shouting down from heaven out of saying, come on, you idiots, get to work. He's patient, and he's the one who's patiently at work to grow his kingdom. And then this this puny beginning and patient growth will eventually lead to pervasive expansion. The mustard seed grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. From the puny mustard seed, it grows and it spreads and it expands. And and some have noted that it would actually be generous to to call the mustard plant a tree. And and it's typically more like a large shrub, whatever, tomato, tomato. The, The point here is not the proper designation for the plant. Again, Jesus is not giving botany lectures here. The point is the contrast between the seed and the end result. And what the end result is, is this tree or shrub of sorts that grows and invades and spreads and expands. You know, there are other kinds of plants in the garden, but Jesus notes here that this mustard seed, this mustard tree, this mustard plant outgrows and dominates them all. And for my reading this last week, I I came across um, some information that that spoke about this mustard tree as kind of an invasive plant. I read a, a quote from Pliny the Elder. And uh, if you know church history, you might have heard of Pliny the Younger before, but this is his dad. He was a Roman governor, Pliny the Elder. And uh, we have some words recorded from Pliny the Elder uh, about the mustard plant. He He said that it grows entirely wild when once it has been planted, it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it. The kingdom of God is like that. It just invades. It's pervasive. It expands extensively throughout All of the peoples and nations of the earth. And that's what Jesus is referring to here when he says that it puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. It's showing something of the the largeness of the result, the final result of the kingdom of God. But what's more is that it's showing something about the blessing of the kingdom of God, right? Shade was a a precious thing in that part of the world, especially at that time. You didn't have air conditioning. You didn't have an outlet to plug your fan into. Shade was your friend. If you read the the chapter four of uh, the the book of Jonah, you know how Jonah felt about his shade. He was pretty protective about his shade. He, He liked his shade. Well, shade in this part of the world at that time was a blessing, And the presence of the kingdom of God grows throughout the ends of the earth to provide blessing. And the blessing to whom? What do the birds represent here? Well, they represent the nations coming into the kingdom of God. And there there are several texts that we could look at in order to explain this. We, We could look at Daniel 4, 10 through 20, Ezekiel 17, 23, Ezekiel 31, 3 through 9. And if you look at these texts, what you'll see is is empires or kingdoms 
being pictured as a tree. And the nations of the earth being depicted as birds that come to dwell in this tree. So look at Ezekiel 17, 23, for example. And the Lord is speaking, he's not speaking about another kingdom, he's speaking about his own kingdom. And uh, there he promises to build his kingdom. He speaks of it as a tree. He says, on the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And listen, and under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. So every sort of bird, what's he talking about? He's talking about the Gentiles, the nations. He's talking about all of the vast and various, diverse and different sorts of people throughout the world, and and that these people will be brought into the kingdom of God, the place of God's provision and protection and blessing. The good news concerning Jesus Christ and his redemption will spread and spread, and people will trust in him and repent and be baptized, and churches will be planted, and disciples will be made, and one day when Jesus returns, the people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will stand before him, worshiping the lamb that was slain as the king of the kingdom, the kingdom with its puny beginnings, with its patient growth, will see pervasive expansion, friends. Jesus promised it. And now we just ask, so what? So what? What, what? what can we believe, trust, do in light of this mustard seed kingdom and it's coming in and through Jesus Christ? Now it's, it's, it's present in our midst. I'd like to offer just a few words for you to, to take home with you in light of what we see here in our text this morning. These three words, they all start with E, enter, expand, and ease. Enter, expand, and ease. First, enter. Enter into God's patient work in your ordinary life. Enter into God's patient work in your ordinary life. God is patiently at work in this world. Join Him. Join Him in your everyday ordinary life. You you know, I I think we can often tend to view living life on mission with God to be this, you know, extremely radical, life-altering, idealistic thing wherein our lives are transplanted from a state of ordinariness into basically being like Billy Graham or the Apostle Paul or something. And yet, when reality sets in, we realize that's not realistic. For most of us. And so we just settle into a state of complacency or apathy. And yet there, there's, there's a better way forward. And that is just joining God in his patient work in your ordinary life. I've been reading this wonderful book by this Anabaptist scholar, uh, Alan Kreider. It's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And it's a fascinating book wherein he's trying to explain what on earth led to the expansive growth of the church in the first three to four to five centuries? You know, they, they started in Jerusalem there in the first century as 150 people in Jerusalem. Nothing that would make them particularly noticeable or special or distinguished. No political power, no wealth, led by some fishermen. And then by 150 AD, they're around 30 to 40,000 people, which is not a lot by any means, but it's quite a bit of growth. 
And then somehow, some way, by 300 A.D., there's 3 million of them. And then by 400 A.D., we're looking at anywhere from 25 to 35 million. How does that happen? How does that happen? Kreider says, patient ferment. Patient ferment. They were patient. They weren't freaking out. They trusted God. They trusted that he would grow his kingdom in his own time and in his own way. And so they just sought to live lives of ordinary faithfulness and patiently waited for their neighbors to come to belief. And they just fermented. Fermentation is this such a mysterious process. If, if you've ever made beer at home or if you've ever gone on tour at like a winery or a meadery or something like that, you, you've seen this. You know that it's this mysterious, slow-going, patient process, and at times there's actually something, you know, and yet there's actually something slow but surely going on, changing about these grapes or these hops or whatever, and they're turning into something delicious. Likewise, the early church, in the midst of the ordinariness, in the midst of their persecution, in the midst of their obscurity, they somehow, some way, mysteriously just multiplied. And the truth is, they didn't have really any mission strategy. They didn't have uh, many, if any, like itinerant preachers like Billy Graham or uh, uh, John Wesley, at least not after the apostles died. It was just ordinary Christians living lives of ordinary faithfulness. People like you and me. And in fact, at one point, Kreider quotes a German expert on the early church named Wolfgang Reinhold. I know you've probably read all of his books, but... uh, Listen to what he said about the early Christians and their living on mission. He said, if the Christians raise their children as Christians, and the Christian man in the course of a generation can convince only one of his pagan neighbors, and the Christian woman can convince only one of her pagan friends, lastingly of the truth of their faith, he and she have done more than we must presuppose in order to explain the growth of the church in the first several centuries. You see what he's saying? On average, the typical believer... They had kids, they raised their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And on average, they would lead one other person outside of their family to faith in their lifetime. And in this way, the church grew and expanded and multiplied exponentially. Listen, when we call you to live on mission here and to be an evangelistic people and and to join God and his work in the world, we're not calling you to be Billy Graham. We're not calling you to be the Apostle Paul. That's not the norm in the church. In fact, the Apostle Paul encouraged us ordinary believers to just live quiet lives in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Just live quiet. It's not bad. In fact, it's okay. It's good. It's a good thing to just be an ordinary person who lives a quiet, unassuming life. Essentially, what we're calling you to when we call you to live on mission as God's people is to just live lives of simple faithfulness in the midst of your ordinary life. Can you identify a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, just one, and just take the next few years to pray for them to come to know Christ, to, to, to pray for opportunities to share the, the truth of Christ with them, And to look for opportunities, to just keep your eyes open for opportunities to love and serve them in practical ways. 
Can you invite them into the life you live with God's people in the church and in your community group? And when the opportunity arises, can you just simply share the gospel with them and offer an explanation for the hope that you have within you? This is largely what what, what we're asking you when, when we ask you as pastors, who's your one? Who's one person you're going to seek to love and serve and pray for and invest in and engage with for the gospel? If you have children... Can you, can you read the Bible and pray with your children? Can you engage in what we, what we often call around here family worship? Maybe that title scares you. It doesn't need to be a big production. You just simply read the Bible and pray with and sing a hymn with your children. Around the dinner table or before bed. It doesn't need to be a big thing. You don't need to make a big fuss about it. Just work it into the ordinary rhythms of your life for 10 minutes, several nights a week. So that you and your spouse and your children can can worship God together. And you can be raising your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Teaching them what God's word says. Speaking with them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Speaking with them about the, the thing that matters most for us and will matter forever. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not calling you to these sorts of practices so that we might treat our neighbors or our children or whomever as projects or or boxes for us to check. I share these practices just because they're simple ways for us to enter into God's patient work in our ordinary lives. These kinds of things may seem extremely ordinary or small to you. It may seem entirely unambitious to you to to, to point to such a simple, ordinary picture of what it looks like to live on mission in the Christian life. But one of the things I've noticed throughout the last several years of being a Christian for the last 13 years is that as Zach Eswine once said, almost anything that truly matters in life will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with him. And that's what I'm calling you to do when I call you to enter into God's patient work in your ordinary life. But then not only enter, expand. Expand your global awareness of God's growing kingdom. And so we're just looking at like kind of on the ground at our small little lives. But let's hop in a plane and just go 40,000 feet to to maybe take a 40,000 foot view here. Because our text is also showing us the the kind of the global nature of God's growing kingdom, right? Involves every nation of the earth. These birds are coming to nest in its shade. That's every nation, every people, every tribe, every tongue coming in to the kingdom of God as the kingdom of God grows in visibility across the earth. Start small, grow slowly, slowly and patiently, but it's ever expanding. And today, the kingdom of God has grown and spread to many places, many peoples, many languages. And it will continue to do so until the end. Till every nation is reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, even while we live patient lives of ordinary faithfulness, we're also called to be aware of what God is doing in this world. To be aware of what is going on in Christ's church throughout the world. To be aware of the the forward movement of the gospel throughout the world. Uh, John Stott summed it up well when he once said that we must be global Christians with a global vision because our God is a global God. And so perhaps for some of us, the first step in that direction is simply growing in awareness of what God is doing throughout the world. There are several resources I'd I'd recommend to you in order to help you grow in this kind of awareness. They've 
first is the Operation World there. Operation World, they have website, uh, written publications. They have actually have an app that I'd suggest downloading if you have an iPhone or whatever. Uh, downloading this app, we use it for family worship at the Green Household. Um, they have this app just with bits of information about different nations and ways to pray for them, and it's updated daily. It's just a great resource uh, for you to be aware of what God is doing in all these nations and for you to be in prayer for all of the, the varying nations of the world. Another great resource is uh, the Joshua Project, which provides information on unreached people groups and, and statistics regarding unreached people groups throughout the world. And it just provides ways for you to be in prayer for these people groups. Uh, Voice of the Martyrs is another one, another resource. They have website, publications, an app, all of which provide information on Christians throughout the world that are persecuted, uh, being imprisoned, beaten, killed for the sake of the gospel. And it provides information so that you can be in prayer for our persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world. Look into those resources and expand your global awareness of God's growing kingdom in the world. And then lastly, ease. Ease yourself in God's promise that he will grow his kingdom. Ease yourself in God's promise that he will grow his kingdom. Just let that help you take a deep breath, a sigh of relief, and just rest in the promise that this is God's work and he will do it. You know, this is an important piece of application for us, I think, because we live, we live in highly anxious times. People are, are anxious, not just Christians, but everyone's so anxious right now about the, the direction of our culture and the state of our culture. But Christians are also sometimes just freaking out, much like the world is. Many of us are afraid of losing a privileged position in society, losing religious freedoms, losing cultural influence, whatever it may be. And recently, all of the, the surveys and research shows that, that the number of Americans involved in churches is declining in quickly. And this is true across, across the spectrum, evangelicals, mainline, Catholic, Orthodox. There's widespread decline across the spectrum. All are showing declining numbers. Baptisms are going down. Church members are going down. Giving is going down. And many Christians are wringing their hands, freaking out frightened about what all this may mean for our future, the future of our children, the future of our nation. And because of this fear, some people are, are grabbing for power wherever they can find it. Christians are attaching themselves to political figures and political movements trying to regain influence and power in this nation. Churches and denominations are casting new visions and strategies to try to get back to previous numbers or whatever. And yet our confidence is not in any such methods or means. Our confidence should be in the promises of God to build his church and expand his kingdom in the earth. He promised to do it. He will do it in his own grace-paced way, in his own way, in his own time. He will do it at times it may seem particularly slow. At times, it may seem like we're moving backward and losing ground, but don't be mistaken, God is not a liar. He has promised to grow his kingdom. God is still at work in this world to grow his kingdom. He's just doing it in his own way, in his own time, in his own patient kind of way. And the parable of the mustard seed reminds us of this. Because we can look back at these 
puny, small beginnings of the kingdom of God on this earth. It didn't start in a grand, demonstrative way that we would probably expect it to. It started with a single man. A single man, again, who grew up in obscurity. He was born to a poor family and, and came from a place where apparently nothing good could come from. And then he, he built his people with 12 disciples, fishermen, ordinary men, some scandalously sinful. And even they all left him and deserted him. Some of them betrayed him and denied him. And here's this single individual the kingdom of God, going to a cross and being crucified, that's the kingdom of God? That's the kingdom of God? And yet, in his being crucified and in his death, he went into the ground like a mustard seed. And he sprouted three days later, unleashing the resurrection power of the kingdom of God into this broken, dying world unleashing this, this new creation, this new kingdom, this new people who will spread and grow. It started in Jerusalem and then it expanded into all of Judea and Samaria and is continuing to spread on into the ends of the earth. This is why it's reached us. It's because Jesus' resurrection power has broken into this world. And this is why it will continue to move throughout every nation, every land, every tribe, every tongue. Because God is faithful. And He is doing it. He will do it. He's doing it in His own timing and in His own way. And so we're invited to enter into this patient work. Expanding our awareness of His work in the world. And all the while being eased by this reality that ultimately it is his work. He has begun it in Christ. He is continuing it in and through Christ and in and through his people. And he will one day finish it. He has promised. And he, is, he fulfills every promise. He will fulfill every promise. Be at ease. God is patiently at work growing his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this precious promise. Although this kingdom began with puny, puny beginnings, and although it's patiently growing, even though we look around us now and we, we see so much ordinariness, we even see sin and, and patheticness all around us and in our own lives. And yet we're thankful that building your kingdom, growing your kingdom is ultimately your work and you will do it in your own time and in your own way. We pray that you would empower us by your spirit to join you in this work in the world, to grow in awareness of what you're doing in the world, and to just be at rest, to be at ease. Your gracious promise to finish it, to complete it, to fulfill it. We pray in Jesus' name.